to this. You know what? And in the ring with Dan and Benny, hey, brother, man, he's about the most cat. I just love him to death. I love you. Thanks for having me. Hey, you're the best. I'm telling you, brother, in the ring with Dan and Benny. Yeah. We love you. Thank Woo. you so much, Dan. Oh, yeah. Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of Dan and Benny in the Ring. I'm Dan Spashano, joined, as always, by the original Long Island Iced B, Benny Scallop. Benny, how you doing? Uh, Dan, I'm doing good. And I checked Chartables.com this morning. We continue to be a presence, presence in Ireland, uh, no doubt assisted by the appearance of Irish Mickey Doyle last week. We've been on the Irish charts so long, I'm actually thinking of changing my name to Benny McScala. What do you think? <laughs> I think uh, that's a good call. Actually, you know, you talk about uh, wanting to pad the the Irish charts, pad the UK charts a little bit. I think tonight's going to do it. You know, there's there's a, a fun interview from a few years back that, with Mick Foley where he was talking about his uh, his WrestleMania moments, and uh, Ed, uh, Adam Copeland Edge was on it, and he said, uh, you know, he he made that Mick Foley had had so many moments in his career, he never really thought. Wow, none of them happened at WrestleMania. You and I were talking earlier today about the show tonight, and uh, the, our guest we've had, we, we've talked to him so many times, it never dawned on me or, or never seemed that we never had a one-on-one sit-down with him. So uh, uh, we're going to pad the charts and have a nice one-on-one sit-down with an old friend. Benny, wants to tell everybody who we got with us tonight. Well, Dan, how many times when you watch a TV show or a movie, how many times have you heard the line, is there a doctor in the house? Well, tonight we actually have one, and better yet, another <laughs> Irish legend. So we will no doubt soar to the very top of the charts in the Emerald Isle. So I am welcome to honor the man with the Ph.D. in professional wrestling, Kansas City's finest, Davey O'Hannon and Dr. O'Hannon. Welcome to Dan and Benny in the Ring. <laughs> well, thank you. Dr. O'Hannon needs a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's nice. I'm flattered and I'm humbled to be here, and thanks so much to you guys and and all the people, and it's uh, uh, lots and lots of people listen, I know that. And if there's someone listening uh, over in the Emerald Isle, uh, my ancestors are from the lanes of Limerick. Uh, that's where it was. Uh, I was never there, but that's where it was. All righty. That's funny. Well, I mean, first things first, uh Everyone needs to know the answer to this question. You, you kind of uh, just answered it for us, actually. Um, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, most wrestling fans have no idea uh, going back. We, we were talking about him a little bit before we got to record uh, whether or not Baron Cicluna was actually from Malta. Uh, yeah. He had his son, Mike, on the show. He, of course, set the record straight. Uh, same thing with with Bruno and Dominic and some of these guys being billed as from Italy or from, you know, from where they are in Europe. Uh, in your case, Joe McHugh introduced you every week is from Kansas City, Missouri. Benny just pitched it. Uh, but your official profile, uh, cagematch.net website, uh, goes through your career, lists your birthplace as Ireland. You mentioned your family being from, from Limerick, which is true. Are, are you a Kansas City boy or, or is Davey O'Hannon actually Irish? Uh, actually Irish and uh, location wrong on both counts. <laughs> Uh-oh. 
Yeah. Set the record straight. Here's a scoop for you. My first match, my first professional time in a wrestling ring was in the Kansas City Territory. So someone told me, well, listen, uh, you don't make any money. You don't get used if you stay in your hometown. Okay? So when I came back to New York, I was billed from Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, I grew up in New Jersey. I'm a Jersey guy. Well, that one settles that. <laughs> I was going to say yeah. that. And, and as far as Mike Cicluna goes, when when I met my wife uh, and we got married, my wife's from Philadelphia, and uh, she used to say, uh, the kids in their neighborhood used to say, that Mike Cicluna, uh, he's not from Malta. He's from Malta Street in Philadelphia, which there is a Malta. <laughs> I said, no, 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 no. He's... He's he's from he's from Malta, and if you got any questions about Dominic, rest his soul, my dear friend. Uh, is Dominic from Italy? I don't know. Have you spoken to him? Holy crap! Is there any doubt that Dominic's from Italy? Jeez. <laughs> it, it's funny, uh, Benny. Remember when we were talking about hide, hiding in the mountains from from the fascists? How it sounded, it sounded like such a far-fetched story, and what we knew wasn't as bad as the, what, the truth. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. The, oh, boy. You're, you're the, not the, kidding. The biography was watered down compared to how bad it was in, in oh, that's for sure. story. Yeah, so, th- those guys, let me tell you, those guys went through some stuff as kids. Uh, Mike Cicluna, I mean, uh, Malta was constantly bombed by everybody. Yes, absolutely. And, and Mike, uh, I don't know if his son Michael, you know, went into detail, but they were starving to death over there. Yes, he starving. Did. You know, and and the trips together uh, with Mike, I would ask those questions. And uh, as far as Dominic goes, Dominic lived in a little valley uh, between two mountains, and on top of one of the mountains was uh, Monte Cassino. A huge World War II battle. And and Dominic told me about first the Germans coming to his house and living there, 10 or 12 of them in the house uh, during the war. And uh, when the Allied troops came in and chased the Germans out and up to Monte Cassino, uh, the Allies were there. I mean, you know, these guys, Mike, Bruno, Dominic, they, they went, some, went through some real, real tough times. Wrestling had to be a breeze after that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, Davey, this is our 130th episode. So we've asked this next question 129 times, and we have gotten 129 different answers. So uh, the question is, when when did the wrestling bug bite you as a fan? So you grew up in New Jersey. Um, When did you first see it? And who was the person that you watched it with when you were, you know, when you were a kid? Well, I guess here comes answer number 130, huh? Uh, I, however old you are when you get the measles, let's see, seven years old, eight years seven, old, eight, yeah, like third, second, third grade. Okay, so I had the measles, and uh, you know I had to be home from school, and my family was in the newspaper and magazine business, and uh, as a professional courtesy. If one of the delivery trucks went by the house that you lived in, they would toss off, you know, back then, don't forget, there were afternoon newspapers, uh, comic books and magazines were a big thing. Anyway, one of the trucks went by and tossed off, uh, you know, a bunch of books uh, for, uh, 
for me. You know, they knew it was a it was a very uh, family and friends or, oriented business, the newspaper business. So you know, I knew all these guys as a little kid and grew up around the business. Anyway, somebody tossed off you know a bunch of comic books and and different kinds of magazines, and one of the magazines was Ring Boxing, which uh, in the very back of it had a few pages dedicated to professional wrestling. And I was just thumbing through this thing, and I went, well, wait a minute. Are these the same guys that I saw on television a couple of nights ago? Well, I, you know, when the time came, I turned the television on, and sure enough, here was wrestling, and here was these guys in the magazine, and, and I watched the wrestling show, and I went, whoa, how about that? And, and I got to tell you, uh, in a very, very short time, I said to myself, that's what I want to be when I grow up. Yeah. I just want to be, I want to be a professional wrestler. And, and I became a fan then and there. I just became a fan. And, uh, you know, it would, that was, uh, like I said, it was surreal for me to be able to even get in the business. Uh, but you know, I put, uh, I put the television on and went, Oh, holy crap. And then, and then not long after that, uh, my mother and father who, who really were not wrestling fans, they were sure aware of it because, you know, back in the fifties, uh, television and, and wrestling, uh, that was a natural marriage right there. And it was really popular. Anyway, they took me to my first live wrestling match which was in a place called the Laurel Gardens in Newark, New Jersey. And, uh, and I, was, I was absolutely in awe of what I was seeing. Uh, uh, I clearly remember Happy Humphrey being in the ring. I don't remember who he was working with, but what I do remember vividly was uh, we, we had bleacher seats, and I was sitting uh, next to my mother or father. I don't know who was right next to me. And I looked down the end of the bleacher, and standing there, leaning on the same uh, bleacher seat that I was sitting on, but, you know, a few yards away, was the original Sheik, Eddie Farhat. Oh, wow. And he looked at me with, with a look that uh, it was just unbelievable. It, and it affected me, so I got up, and I, I went to the other seat on the other side of my father. That's how much this guy scared me. And, and you know, after I got into business and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really close with J.J. Dillon and uh, the Sheik really treated him well up in, uh, uh, in Detroit when he first broke in. And I said, Jimmy, I said, I got to tell you something about Farhat uh, when I was a little kid. And he didn't even let me finish the sentence. He said he gave you that look, didn't he? I said, yeah. <laughs> well, he, it was unreal. It was under, you know, that's how serious things were about the wrestling business then. And in front of the people, never stepped out of character, ever, ever. Right. Wow. So, so I decided at seven or eight years old, this is what I want to do, you know, and I got lucky. I got lucky. Well, so- <clears throat> We're going to jump ahead a few years uh, before we get too deep into the into your career after you transitioned. Uh, May 17th, 1963, 
Bruno oh, San Martino Lord. defeated Buddy Rogers to win the Worldwide Wrestling Federation Heavyweight Championship. It was a sure big did. deal. He beat him in Madison Square Garden in 48 seconds. And correct me if I'm wrong, but there was a 12-year-old boy in attendance at the time. Um, care telling us, uh, our listeners, about yeah, that incredible experience? That, that absolutely begged his mother. Because, uh, you know, my father in the newspaper business uh, quite often worked at night. Worked at night. You know, people read the papers in the morning. Right. Uh, and now I, I don't remember what night it was on. It could have been a Saturday night. If it was, my father was working because Sunday morning there's a paper. But anyway, uh, got my mother to bring me there. Uh, I, I, I can still picture and, and hear the crowd, uh, the whole crowd, pretty well-dressed. Uh, mostly mostly uh, grown-up guys in the crowd. Uh, very, very many of them with uh, uh, suits on, ties, and yeah, yep. fedoras, and, and dressed up. Uh, lots of them, lots of them uh, screaming and cheering in Italian. And uh, uh, it was unbelievable. I mean, the old garden, you know, I got to go there a few times. I got to go there a few times. You, you had to be 14 years old, but I was, you know, I was a little bit bigger as a kid. So, so, you know, they didn't question me, uh, you know, and it was back when, uh, you know, we would take the bus from New Jersey to the Port Authority and, and walk up uh, six or eight blocks to, to the old garden. And uh, the atmosphere in the place was, was indescribable. It was unreal. Uh, all the people uh, underneath the marquee outside, everybody talking about Bruno you know, what's going to happen? Oh, do you think this will be okay? Is Bruno going to lose? Uh, the magazine people out there selling this stuff. It, w- it was an event. It was an unbelievable event. And, and the, the place actually exploded when, when Buddy uh, gave the referee the signal, and let's get out of here. You know, Buddy actually had no choice because he was on the verge of getting hurt really bad. Uh, and, and that would have happened. That would have happened. Uh, but it, you know, I didn't know that at the time, of course, you know, that, that was just the things that I learned from being in a car with certain people, you know, uh, but it, the, the atmosphere in the place was just unbelievable, unbelievable. It, it'll never be duplicated. You know, maybe. Well, I'm sorry, go ahead, Dan. No, go go ahead, Benny. I'll just uh, no. I, I was gonna say, you know, now fast forward about seven years and eight months to uh, uh, January of 1971, and Bruno's facing Ivan Koloff in the Garden, and Ivan takes yep. him right in the middle of the ring, and you were there for that one as well, correct? Yeah, I was. I was bugging uh, uh, promoters uh, to let me get in the business. You know, I want to be a wrestler. I want to be a wrestler. So you, you would have been about twenty then. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, I think it was Arnold Scolan, uh handed me a, a couple of passes just to get in. You know, no seats attached to them. So so I went and uh, and I was there uh, when uh, they made that switch. And you know, I wasn't smart to it, uh, uh, but when I tell you the place. It was like you turned off the volume on your television. Yeah, but it was, Bruno, it was, Bruno said he thought he had, like, Koloff had actually, like, done something where he lost, had some hearing loss because he couldn't believe it was so quiet after the match. Oh, is that right? I'll tell you what you did here. 
you heard people actually uh, sobbing, and and uh, I'm sure they were crying. It was listen. I was trying to get in the business, and again, I I wasn't uh, smartened up to it yet. But but that was that was a really strange feeling for me. You know, I I didn't even know Bruno at the time. I didn't even know him. I'd never met him yet. And and Bruno just lost the title. Twenty thousand people are are just stunned. Some of them are crying. They're staring at the ring. You know, uh, uh, Red came out. Koloff came out, and you know, walked right past me, uh, kind of double time, because I think they told him, "You better get out of here really quick." You know, when you, it, it when it gets quiet, the the old timers call it white heat. And boy, oh boy, it was, you know, I, again, I didn't appreciate it at the, at that time. I was just upset that Bruno uh, lost the belt. Uh, I was just upset, but it was, it was unbelievable, you know, and, and, you know, for me, uh, you know, so I, so I got to, uh, I got to be, uh, around for, for a couple of really, really uh, important things for our business. I was going to ask, um, you, you were describing a scene, I'm sure, uh, you know, the wrestling world's long, long, will long since never see again, as it were. Um, but just, I mean, appease my curiosity here. You have a, a crowd full of suit and fedora wearing people. Uh, who were they there to cheer for? I, I don't get it. <laughs> when, when Bruno beat Buddy? I mean, I mean, well, my my last name ends in a vowel, and I was born in New Jersey, so I, I've never seen yeah. anybody like that before. So I don't understand. Oh, no. yeah. oh yeah. yeah. Well, I spent a minute. I'll tell you who they were cheering for. <laughs> oh my God! I mean, I was here. Now, keep in mind, don't tell Vince McMahon Senior this, but I'm only uh, half Irish, so 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 I I could pick up because because my great grandmother and great grandfather didn't speak english around the house you know so so i could pick some things up and and boy uh in 63 there was no doubt who those people were cheering for there was you you didn't have to understand the language to figure out what was going on the, you didn't have to understand the language uh, you know uh, i'm sure they wanted to make that switch uh, to bruno i guess if buddy was a better businessman they could have run that thing for months. They could have run that thing for months. But, you know, unfortunately, they couldn't trust Buddy. And uh, and lucky for Buddy that they couldn't trust him uh, because I know that uh, Vince Sr. said to Bruno, listen, when you get in the ring, uh, and, and I got this, this came out of Bruno's mouth, and uh, Bruno never told a lie. I'm telling you that's that's a fact, right? Uh, Bruno said to me that Vince Senior uh, said to him, "Listen, if he if he doesn't cooperate there tonight, can you beat him?" <laughs> and so Bruno said, "Can I beat him? Yeah, how fast do you want me to beat him?" And and Vince said to him, "Let's get this done really fast, so there's so there's no question about it." And uh, and Bruno snatched him up. He went and Bruno told him. Give it up, or I'm going to break your back. Period. Didn't have to say anymore. Buddy knew he could do it. Buddy was up there on his shoulder, 
and and you know that's not a really good position to be in. No, I mean, you know you're you're pretty out of control of your body up there. Not much you can do. And, and at that time, Bruno was arguably one of the strongest men in the world. Oh my God! <laughs> oh jeez! Yeah, yeah, Bruno. Bruno could have snapped him like a twig, man. You know, and Buddy knew it. Buddy, Buddy, listen. Buddy was a, a superstar, fantastic. Did anybody have a better look for professional wrestling than Buddy Rogers? Now he was, he was, he was all of that. He was all of that. But Buddy, as as well built and everything as he was, was not a tough guy. He was not a tough guy. So you know, if you if if you walked into a dressing room in those days, or you know, even in the days I was in, and, and you were, thought you were going to get into a scrape with somebody, and and you had a choice of uh, uh, Buddy Rogers or Bruno, oh yeah, well don't pick don't pick Bruno. <laughs> that's that's going to be a mistake, man. You know that's no good. So so you know, Buddy knew uh, uh, you know where he was, and 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 Bruno. Don't forget, Bruno. Bruno had just been kind of blackballed and not treated really well in the right. business. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and Bruno was going to make sure this thing worked, and it did. Oh yeah, and it did. So, Davey, um, how did how did you get in? Who who trained you? I mean, uh, nobody. <laughs> Not a soul. I, uh, you know, once again, you know, like I said, it was in those days. It was a closed shop. You had to get close to somebody that agreed to take their time and and train you for the business. There were no wrestling schools. That that stuff is is relatively new. Uh, so what happened was I was in in college out in Missouri, and you know because I was a fan. You know, of course, I'd I'd watch the wrestling and and uh, go up uh, from school to Kansas City to see it there. So, uh, what I did was I took uh, my amateur wrestling stuff, my uh, singlet and, and my shoes, and uh, change of clothes and put them in a suitcase, and took a bus up to Kansas City, and I went to the Kansas City War Memorial. Uh, where the NWA, the Kansas City Territory, would have its Thursday night show. It was their big show at the War, War Memorial. And uh, I took the bus up there. How I got to the arena from uh, in Kansas City, I think I probably took a cab. Uh, and I knocked on the door. I banged on the back door at about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And some guy working in there says, what can I do for you? I said, oh, I'm one of the wrestlers I got in early here. Oh, he says, come on in. I said, oh wow, okay. That's as far as I that's as far as I've been so far. Uh, now keep in mind that for years, a couple of years, I would bug Angelo Savoldi, Arnold Scolin, uh, Gino, you know, Monsoon. I would I would bug them at every wrestling show and say, I want to be a wrestler. I want to be a wrestler. You know, I was big, I was in pretty decent shape, and and they would all say, Oh yeah, okay, when you're done with college, come and see us. Okay, so I go to Kansas City. Now I got myself in a dressing room, and I'm sitting there. And, you know, it's like I said, it's 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon. What the hell am I going to do here? I, you know, I walked out, looked at the ring, closest I've been except for a seat in the front row. 
I said, wow, this is pretty neat. And I hear people coming uh, into the dressing room. So the first two guys that walked in were uh, guys called, uh, it was a tag team called the Outlaws. It was Dusty and Dick Murdoch. Okay. And they, they came in, and, and etiquette in our business was if you didn't know somebody, you walked right up to them, stuck your hand out, and introduced yourself. So, yeah, I knew who they were. I saw them on television. Hey, how you doing? Okay, great. Okay, so right behind them comes the promoter, a guy named Gus Karras, uh, who was Alex Karras's father. Alex uh, played football right. for the Detroit right. Lions, and yeah, they did a little thing with Bruiser whenever that happened. Uh, so he wrestled a little bit. Anyway, so it was Alex Karras who was the Kansas City promoter, and he was coming in with another guy that was a partner in a territory named Bob Geigel, uh, Texas Bob Geigel. Oh yeah. Uh, and they came in and they looked at me and they said. What are you doing here? I went, uh, <laughs> I said, okay, what am I doing here? I said, well, you know what? Arnold Skolan sent me to see you and uh, and said you could help me get into business. So Kygel looks at me and says, you know Skolan? I said, well, sure, I know Skolan. He says, well, what do you need? I said, well, he told me you could, uh, you could help me out getting into business here. He said, all right, just sit tight for a while, kid. So I sat in the dressing room. I watched who came in and out. You know, uh, uh, Fez was there at the time, Roger Kirby. You know, I, I, if I thought for a while, I could probably uh, think of all of them. And uh, I watched the show, and I stayed in the seat. And after the show, Geigel says, well, what are you doing now? I said, I don't know. I guess i got to get a bus back to school. He said, come with me. And uh, right in downtown Kansas City, there was a hotel where everybody stayed. And that was either it was either called the Senator or the Kansas Cityan. There were two hotels they all stayed in. But anyway, I'll, I think it was the Senator Hotel. So Geigel says to me, well, why don't you stay over, and, and we can talk uh, uh, tomorrow morning at breakfast. Oh, wow, yeah. But he saw that I didn't have any money with me. So he, he brought me into the hotel, and I, I saw him kind of bickering with the guy at the desk, and, and he got me a, a room for the night for $4. I said, oh, okay, that'll work. You know, so... So I'm I'm already a big shot, man. I know Gus Karras, and, you know, I know Bob Geigel. Uh, you know, the night before, I wouldn't have known him if they sat on my lap, but, you know, I knew him then. So uh, next morning, uh, I meet Geigel next door at the little uh, coffee shop, and he buys me breakfast. And he says, so you're, uh, you're in the business, huh? Skolin said uh, you could work here. I said, yes, sir. He said, okay, tell you what. He said, uh why don't you be down in Sedalia, which is a little east, a lot, lot east, about 80 miles, I guess, of Kansas City, uh, Sedalia, Missouri, and uh, he says, we'll get you going there. I said, oh, okay, shit, this is, this is going to work out real well, except uh, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. You know, I know I, I know how to wrestle, but I don't know anything about professional wrestling, uh, except what I see on the television sure. or in a magazine. So sure enough, uh, you know, I was in Sedalia uh, that following Tuesday night, and uh, uh, he had me booked with a, a guy named Joe Scarpello. Uh, now I was pretty big; I was about 260 pounds, and in, in in pretty good, you know, I was still in football shape. Uh, anyway, uh, I'm I'm going to work with Joe Scarpello, so uh, we get in the ring, and 
I only knew terminology from what I heard in dressing rooms. I didn't know. I knew. I knew what a shoot was because I was a shooter. You know, I could. I could shoot, but I didn't know what work meant. I had no idea. I had no idea. So Joe Scarpello and I are in a ring. It was a referee was a a grizzly old timer named Ronnie Etchison, and and I actually saw Ronnie Etchison wrestle Angelo Sapoldi in the Asbury Park Convention Hall in Jersey when I was a kid. So I said, uh, what are we doing? Are we shooting or working? And I heard Ronnie Etchison go, oh, Christ, no. <laughs> Just like that. And I said to myself, well, I wonder why he said that. And Joe Scarpello leaned forward and said, take your best hold, kid which is not a good sign if you know what's going on. So for the next, uh, I guess, seven or eight minutes, I realized that I didn't have a best hold. Joe Scarpello t- tied me in absolute knots. Uh, and I mean tied me up. He never hurt me, but he, he let me know that he could if right. he wanted to. Now, he wasn't a big guy. I was I was probably 20 or 30 pounds bigger than him. But, uh, you know, we, we did the match, and, uh, you know, I didn't even know what happened after it was over. I just, you know, here I was getting up, and Joe Scarpello's got his hand raised. And I go back, and, uh, and I'm sitting on a bench in a dressing room wondering what just happened to me. This isn't what I see on television. You know, <laughs> it was way more comfortable sitting in a seat being a fan and uh, Joe Scarpello comes by, and he gives me a little slap on the back of the neck and says, see you tomorrow, kid. And a little voice in my head said, oh, oh yeah? <laughs> well, we don't know for sure about that. So, you know, I, I, I sat there for a while, and uh, uh, in a little while after that, uh, Ronnie Etchison, who was the agent for that town, uh, came to me and said, uh, listen, you want to do this again? So I said, well, yes, sir, I think I do. And he said, okay, listen, he says, uh, Geigel said to tell you uh, to be in St. Joe on uh, Friday night. And and if you want to work the weekend, uh, he's got something for you Saturday night, too. I said, okay. So uh, uh, I uh, took the bus again, and I got up to St. Joseph, Missouri, was where they did the, the TV uh, for the Kansas City Territory. And, you know, I, I saw where the guys were. I was kind of sitting by myself in the corner, and uh, a guy came by. He said, so you're back, eh, kid? And I said, yes, sir. <laughs> so I kept, kept uh, uh, my verbiage to a minimum. And uh, he said, okay, he says, you got an easy one tonight. Don't worry about it. He says, you, you just listen. Uh, he says, uh, the guy's coming over to see you now. Oh, crap. Well, I know who that is. That's Luthez. Oh, my okay. God. Oh, yeah, you're not kidding. But I didn't know. You know, I just knew who he was. I didn't oh, know God. to say, oh, my God, yet. Uh, but he came over. He says, uh, he says, I hear you're a shooter. So I, I just said, well, yes, sir, I know how to wrestle. Uh, now, one thing in the wrestling business uh, that you learn really early and probably in life uh, you learn it. You, you don't let somebody, or you don't, uh, without some reaction, take a slap in the face. 
I'd, I'd rather have you make a fist and drill me, and then we see what goes on after that. But Luthez says, all right. He says, oh, we're going to wrestle a little bit. He says, but kid, listen, I'm, I might shove you back to the ropes, open you up a little bit. He says, you know, I'm going to give you a slap in the face. So I said, well, Mr. Thez, I said, if you slap me in the face, I said, I'm going to slap you right back. And he just smirked at me, shook his head, and walked away. Uh, now, later, uh, because I became friends with Lou, I found out that that was a test. That was a test. He, he wanted to see, uh, you know, a new guy is called a new punk, and he wanted to see if I was going to just take that or if I was going to defend myself. And so he found out. He didn't slap me. Uh, he did show me his elbow on a few occasions, on my ear, on my nose, above my eye. Uh, didn't hurt me, but once again, I was getting that little bit of a message that uh, this is not a game. This is our livelihood, and, and this is how we treat it. So uh, I worked with Luthez on TV. It was probably only four or five minutes, and I really depended on some amateur background, which, which Thez liked, because Thez was not a, a big guy on gimmick stuff and, and, you know, no cartoons, which I never did in the ring ever in 20 years. I, I never made a joke out of it. Uh, so that was fine. And then Saturday night, I had to go to Waterloo, Iowa. And I went to Waterloo, Iowa. And uh, I worked with Danny Hodge. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah, wow. What about an now, Holy cow. Since, since I was an amateur, I knew who Danny Hodge was. I knew who, who Danny Hodge was. And uh, so, so we had a match. I should say he had a match. <laughs> I, I was just there for it, and, and uh, that was it. I had one more uh, match in that territory uh, back in Marshall, Missouri, with a guy named Mike George. Uh, and, uh, you know, he turned out to be kind of a local guy there, a good worker and everything, and, and uh, that was it. And it was time for me to go home for a break or whatever it was, and uh, I asked Geigel, I said, you know, is there anywhere else I could, I could do this to learn some more? And he set me up to make a stop in Columbus on the way home. Uh, and I think the promoter's name at the time was Al Haft. I think. That name I'm not sure. Good. You know, I know he was in that area. I'm not sure. Because, you know, I didn't know uh, from promoter, booker, agent. I didn't, you know, I didn't know any of that stuff. So, uh, so I worked in a tag match. And I don't remember who my partner was. But uh, I worked against uh, Frank Valois. And Frank Hickey. Space Talk man. about, oh, yeah. <laughs> Talk about, uh, now there's a real live road warrior, Frank Hickey. He'd been to every territory, you know, and he might have looked a little amusing, but he was the real deal in the ring. But he, you know, he was the quintessential professional wrestler. And, you know, I was still, uh, I still wasn't completely smart to this. You know, now I knew they gave me a finish, but, you know, I didn't know everything in between. And and I went out and locked up really stiff with Frank Hickey. I kind of collared an elbow and, and yanked him in. And, you know, if you, don't, if you don't learn really good ring presence, you think that everybody in the building hears every word you say and, and sees everything you do, uh, 
you know, so, so you're really kind of self-conscious until you're comfortable and a little bit uh, uh, seasoned. And Frank Hickey looked over his shoulder when I locked up with him and looked at Frank Valois and said, run for your life, cement mixer, cement mixer. I had, I had no idea what he was talking about. Well, cement mixer, yeah, somebody that works really stiff, crowbar, you know. <laughs> but I thought, holy crap, everybody's hearing this. I don't know what this means. So, uh, you know, a little later in a dressing room, uh, he said to me, come here, sonny boy. He says, let me show you. Frank had a really entertaining voice, uh, like a cartoon character almost. <laughs> and and he went, come here, come here, let me show you how to do this. He said, just, he always called himself Mother Hickey. Let Mother Hickey show you how to do this. And and once in the ring, uh, he called a slam. I slammed him. And, and when I slammed him, right from the mat, he went, Oh, my God, not like that. Jesus Christ. He, he got up, he slammed me. He said, Now, see, did that hurt? That didn't hurt. Yeah, you listen to Mother Hickey. You know, it was like a... It was like a you know a speed dial lesson in professional wrestling. Wow. So, so you know that's what happened. And then I came back to the New York territory, and I found Scotland. And I said, "Hey Arnold, remember me? Yeah, kid, you go to college?" I said, "Yeah, I was in college in Missouri." I said, "But I was I'm in the business. I worked for Bob Geigel and Karras out in Kansas City." He said, "What?" I said, "Yeah, I was working for them out there." And they said, "Come and see you when I came home." He said. You're in? I said, yeah, I'm in. He said, okay, be in uh, Philadelphia TV Tuesday night. And there I was in Philadelphia TV. Still didn't get broken in. Still had no idea what was going on. And uh, I was actually Tony Gurria's first match in the New York Territory, in the WWWF. Wow. And and I grabbed Tony. I don't know if, I'm sure you guys are, are pretty smart to this stuff. You know, we all work on the left side of the body. I don't take a look sometime. You'll see everybody, almost everybody knows what they're doing is working on your left arm. Oh yeah. Always, always the left arm. I don't know why, but that's what happened. And I worked with Korea and I'm sure I grabbed them on the wrong side a few times, but Tony, while he was in before me was, you know, he was a little bit new like me and I always said that the only way I could learn how to do this stuff is to watch. So after I wrestled, I'd go up in the Philadelphia arena, uh, and there were seats up in the back that were away from the people we could uh, go watch. And I'd sit there watching, and sitting behind me was Don Jardine. Uh, spoiler. Spoiler, yeah. Yeah, and, and he says, hey, kid, he says, uh, he says, geez, I saw you working out there. He says, I see you work European style sometimes. I didn't know what he meant. I said, yeah, sometimes, you know, I, I, you know, I'm trying to cover for myself. And he says, yeah, I saw you grab him on the right side a couple of times. Uh-oh. All right. Let me go get a magazine, take another look at this, and let me watch a little more. And so that's how I learned that. And as as I progressed in the business a little bit, as they used me a little more, uh you know, and all of us did it with a new guy. Uh, and it was also a test when you went to a new guy and said, listen, do you mind? I saw your match. Do you mind if I give you a little bit of constructive criticism? Uh, now, if you were smart, you said, oh, absolutely. 
with whatever you have to say. Uh, you know, some guy said, no, nah, that's the way I do things. Yeah. So I said, well, yeah, sure. Somebody came to me. So several guys would take me by the hand, Blackjack Mulligan, you know, Bobby and I got to be really good friends. And, and he said to me, come here, come with me. He says, listen, you know, till you learn what to do with those punches, he says, use your forearm, lay them in there, do this, boom, boom, boom. Uh, Lanza, his partner, Jack, great guy, said to me, come in the shower for a minute, kid. I've got to show you something. He said, do you know what a beal is? Nope, no idea. Well, you know, for the people, a beal was a shoulder haul from the corner. You know, you took a little bump across the ring. It's called, it's called a beal. I didn't know that. You know, I didn't know what that was. So little by little, guys would would teach you and smarten you up a little more. And, and that's how I learned. I learned on-the-job training, in the ring, uh, and, and that's what I did. And that's what I did. I would go ask a question, you know, and, and depending on who you were working with, you'd say to somebody, you know, listen, I'd like to try this. Okay. Okay, well, we'll get it done. And, and that's how I learned. I never, I never had anybody actually break me in uh, except say to me, come here, I want to talk to you in the shower for a minute. Where you're alone, they wouldn't embarrass you. You know, they'd say, why don't you try this? Or why don't you try that? Or do this? Uh, or do that? And, you know, i got to give so many of them credit. Uh, so many guys from that era. You know, like I said, the Blackjacks, George Steele, Bruno, uh, Mike, Dominic, uh, Manny Soto, Pete Sanchez, Johnny Rods. Uh, you know, all of them. All of them. And, and what happens is, you know, if you had a decent attitude and, and they didn't think you were a shithead, you know, they... They helped you out. They'd help you out, and and that's what we did, and that's what we did. Well, let me uh, let me ask you real quick, um, kind of expand on that. We were talking a little bit before the show about the current product, and mm-hmm. some some recent stories that have come out. Uh, several high profile younger wrestlers did various interviews or or fan events or whatever, and in the process of the interview, mentioned how they refuse. Uh, in some cases, calling people out by name, they refuse to listen to the elders. Uh, <laughs> I'm curious, like take AEW, for example. Imagine being a young kid and you have Tully Blanchard, Arn Anderson, Sting, Dean Malenko, uh, and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in the locker room and going six months out of wrestling school and going, nah, I'm good. Like, do you think this, that the, the, the kind of transition away from the stories you were just telling it has had an impact on the product. Cause we were talking about the difference uh, between the talents today. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, you know what? I, and again, I, I couldn't tell you who was working for either one of those companies. Cause I don't watch it. Uh, but I have seen some, you know, I'd, I'd flip through if I was going to uh, see what was on and well, it's not the wrestling business anymore. It's not that I've seen guys get in the ring uh, it was several weeks ago. I was, I don't know if I was between periods in a hockey game or something and I was watching and I saw these guys and, and we used to bristle if somebody said, Oh, who's your choreographer? I don't know. Why don't you hop in a ring with me? You'll find out about choreographing. This thing looked so choreographed to me that, you know, it, like I said, phenomenal athletes, phenomenal athletes. I watched 10 minutes. I didn't see one wrestling hold. Not one wrestling. Let me bend over, do a backflip for you. Let me, uh, you know, go into the rope upside down, back up, you know, all of this stuff. Come on. 
come on, you're, 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 you're supposed to be, well, no more you're not, but, you know, you were supposed to be trying to win an athletic contest. Right. Not, not, doing, not doing somersaults and handstands. When, when we were working, there were guys that did that, but they also wrestled, and that, that was part of their high spot. That was part of their high spot to, to, to showcase their, that talent that they had. There was a guy years ago from, I think he was from Brazil, I think. His name was Basile Bata. I remember him. And, and, and he's, working, he's working with Mike Cicluna one night. And, you know, at this point in his life, Mike just didn't like being in the ring anymore. You know, it was it was getting to be a bit of a drag. It's a job. And Basile Bata, we're sitting in a dressing room, and and Mike is playing cards. And Basile says, uh, "Can I speak to you for a minute?" Mike says, "Sure, sure." Uh, he says, uh, "What I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to I'm going to kind of spin around, and I'm going to give you a kick in the stomach. You bend over. I'm going to hop up and dance on your back." And I'll do a backflip off of your back, and then we'll take it from there. <laughs> and we're we're all sitting there listening to this. And and this is when we used to carry little leather bags. A lot of the guys that kept, you know, if you had a watch or your wallet or money or jewelry, whatever it was, you put it in a bag because you didn't want to leave things in dressing rooms. You didn't know who was walking around. And uh, uh, somebody said, "Pick up your poke, fellas. This ought to be good to watch." You know, we knew what was going to happen. And uh, sure enough, Mike Cicluna said to him, oh, sure, okay, yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> and they got in the ring, and Basile Bata uh, hit Mike in the stomach, and uh, Mike gave him a shot in the chest that we used to call a lung crusher. <laughs> and, you know, I think I was standing next to Strongbow in, in, the, in the runway to the dressing room, and Strongbow went, Oh, that hurt my chest. I said, yeah, well, no kidding. I said, oh, my God. Well, that was it, and we didn't see Basile Bata again. He left the territory. He was, he was short-lived. I remember that. He didn't last too long. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> you don't want Mike Cicluna whacking on your chest when he's no. pissed off at you. You know? So so that was that. You know, that was that. But, you know, if you if you went in the ring... You had to have a wrestling match first. You know, nowadays, like I say, you know, I'm not going to knock them. I can't do what they're doing. You know, I don't want to do what they're doing. I'm, I mean, I, you know, we used to joke around and say, you know what? We were, we were about 15 years too soon in this business. Uh, you know, these guys, I guess, are creative or more creative than us. You know, we, we didn't take chances and, and say to a promoter, hey, let's try this or let's try that. We just did what we were told. You know, we just did what we were told. You had your own personality, and, you know, the promoter usually respected that. You know, sometimes they'd, they'd change you over from a heel to a baby. Uh, you know, that happened, or vice versa. Uh, but, you know, we didn't do what these guys do. And, and like I said, I see it, and I tried to watch it a couple of times, and I went, no, 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 no. No, you know, if, if you're really trying to make this believable, then you can't make it believable with what they're doing with what they're doing. Uh, you know, too much of that stuff. I have you, I'm sure you guys have seen, I've seen it on independent shows. Uh, you know, if I put on a YouTube and somebody says, you got to watch this independent show, you see a whole cart of wrestlers standing out on the floor and a guy standing up on a top turnbuckle and they're waiting for him 
yeah. to jump off onto them. So how many people can one guy hit at a time? There's 15 guys standing out on the floor. Three guys catch him, and 15 of them fall down. Wait a minute. How absolutely ridiculous does this look? I mean, come on. Come on. You know, let's... Uh, you know, I had a rule for myself that, uh, you know, I say to a guy, listen, you're going to drive. Listen, I worked with Dusty. I worked with Dusty in the National Coliseum in New York. And, you know, I knew I was putting Dusty over. He, he was he was a legend. Uh, he was a great worker. He had he had a great mind for the business. Uh, but I said to him before we went out, I said, hey, Verge, I said, listen, you know, uh, you know, I don't know you that well. I said, I'll do all your stuff for you. I'll do all your stuff. I'll take all the bumps. Don't you worry about a thing. Uh, the only thing is when it's time to go home and you're going to drop that uh, dusty elbow on me, don't do too much with the fans because if I have to wait too long for it, I'm going to get up. I'm not going to lay there, watch you talk to the fans for 30 seconds, uh, make some motions with your hands for another 30 seconds. I'm supposed to be in a fight with you. You know, I'm not turning my back on you, and, I, and I'm not laying there waiting for you. Unless you knock me out cold, then I got no choice. You know, we could do that. But so nowadays you'll see somebody actually wait and get themselves into position for this stuff to happen. You know, for this stuff to happen. And then that's the difference. So, you know, whatever it was I was watching that time, I just turned it off. I said, well, this is kind of ridiculous to me. You know, it's just, uh, you know, I'm, I hope they're making a good living. I hope they're saving their money because, uh, you know, I got a little news flash for them. Uh, years to come, and that body's not going to feel too good. You know, you're going sure you to make sure you got some good insurance, man. <laughs> well, going, uh, going back to your career, um, you talked a lot about the territories. You, you were kind of in the mid seventies at that point. Um, right. From from a title perspective, you did really well when you ended up in Amarillo. Uh, you teamed with Dennis Stamp. This was June eleventh, nineteen seventy six. You were just shy of your twenty fifth birthday, so you were still twenty four. Uh, you okay. defeated Scott Casey and Reggie Parks and won the NWA Western States Tag Team Championships. Uh, Is that who we after, were? <laughs> go ahead. Is that who we wanted from? I didn't remember. <laughs> uh, sh shortly after, you guys were victorious over a team uh, featuring a guy named Dory Funk Jr. I think that anybody with the name Funk may come up once or twice if you talk about Amarillo. Yeah. yeah. Who did he, I mean, he ever beat? In, <laughs> in, in, in 76, you also won the uh, prestigious NWA Texas Brass Knuckles Championship. Yeah, um, I did. Which, yeah. I mean, the lineage of that title could be a Hall of Fame by itself. So, I mean, 76, oh. you, you were on the re receiving end of some of the biggest accolades the NWA had in that at, in the South at that time. Can you kind of expand a little bit on 76? What, what made you so successful in, when you ended up in yeah, Amarillo? Yeah, it was a good year. But you know what? I, I'm, I really made a mistake in this business because I, I had, I won't call it a cocky attitude, but I, but I had a bit of an attitude toward promoters that I shouldn't have. It was, it was more like, I know more about this stuff than they do. Well, clearly I didn't. And, you know, I, because I don't know why I was like this, you know, I would say to myself, well, this isn't the way to do this. You know, I'm, yeah, great idea, Dave. You're going to tell Vince McMahon or you're going to tell the funks how to run their territory or, you know, the Gus Karras or whoever it might've been. 
And and I used to, you know, I think I walked into New Brunswick, which was the Maritimes, and uh, I I said to the, it was actually a guy named, oh, I can't remember, I'll think of it in a minute, but it was one of the Funk's uncles that was up in the Maritimes that was the uh, one of the promoters up there. And I said, uh, listen, just so you know, I didn't I didn't come up here to do jobs every night. Well, boy, couldn't be a worse attitude than that. That's a terrible attitude. And and finally George Steele smartened me up. He said, you know, George and I were really really close. Uh and he said to me, "What in the world am I hearing you're saying to people?" He said, "Look at me." He said, "When do I ever get my hand raised?" in a house show. And I, I thought for a minute and I went, Oh yeah. You know, George said, I never get my hand raised in a house show. We do that on television because they want to give me a push. Well, I was getting my hand raised on television and we were doing things that I didn't realize, uh, were to make people come back. So it, you know, it was a little late, in the learning process for me to do that. Uh, you know, I was really lucky to be able to work NWA territories because they're so much different than the WWF was. You, you had to wrestle. I mean, my first NWA territory was Amarillo, and my first match in Amarillo was a 45-minute, two out of three, uh, with Scott Casey. Scott Casey was a phenomenal worker. Yes, phenomenal. He was. Yeah. he was a big star down there. And, and we were working either in Colorado Springs or Pueblo, Colorado. Uh, you know, two out of three, 45 minutes. You didn't see that in New York. You never saw that in New York. You know, in New York, it was slam, bam, out, punch, kick, goodbye. You know, get the big bodies over, and that was that. So I was lucky. I got to work and I got to learn things. Like I see, you mentioned Abe Jacobs before. I worked with Abe Jacobs. I worked with Reggie Parks, uh, Ricky Romero, Scott Casey. You know, I worked with Dory. I mean, so many of these guys, they were, they were absolute geniuses in the business. They were geniuses in the business. I worked with Chavo. Uh, you know, they brought Chavo in to work with me in Albuquerque, and, and we had a really good night. Uh, you know, so stuff like that. I, I just wish... That, that I used the, the, the little bit of success I had in Amarillo when I went to other places. You know, I, but, you know, uh, Amish people say, uh, uh, too late, smart. You know, that's what happened. Right. You know, Davey, when, when I was a teenager is when I would watch you on Saturday mornings, uh, championship or all-star wrestling and in my mind i'm thinking man what a life these guys have man they're they're rich they're famous you know they they, they you know they had they wrestle for you know 10 minutes a night and it, nothing could have been further from the truth i mean when when i've learned you know from talking to guys like you and dominic and you know some of the other wrestlers what life was as a professional wrestler what, what you had to do and just as an example when you when we talked on the phone you told me the the routine, the, the weekly routine uh, for Amarillo, and oh my God, what you, yeah. you I mean, how how'd you even keep a car going with the amount of miles? Well, yeah, I I mean I I you know since I made a lot of close friends and I and I was smart enough not to alienate the other guys in the business. Uh, before I went to Amarillo, I actually got 
booked in Amarillo while I was working in the Maritimes. And and Bugsy uh, was up there. He and I were tag-teaming uh, in the Maritimes and in that territory. And Terry Funk had come up to work with their top guy up there, a guy named Leo Burke. Oh, yeah. Uh, so Leo was a fantastic worker. Uh, uh, he was one of the family, the Cormier family, that owned the territory. And uh, we're working up there, and Bugsy says to Terry, because uh, I didn't know Terry, you know, and I was a heel. I was in the, in a dressing room. I, I just didn't get to see Terry right away. And Bugsy says uh, to Terry, you got to bring him down to Amarillo. you got to bring him down to Amarillo, because he's about to get fired up here. Well, he was right. I was about to get fired up in, in New Brunswick. But uh, so... Uh, I called Dory Funk, and I said to Dory, uh, oh, "Listen, I, you know, I was up here. Terry told me. Terry gave me your number and said to give a call. And uh, uh, you know, I think I'd like to come down to your territory." So Dory said, "Well, sure. When can you come down?" And it was right around Easter. So I said, uh, "Well, I, I, I think I'm going to take a couple of weeks off." And Dory said, "What?" I said, "I'm going to take a few weeks off." And, you know, he said, "Well, nobody ever said that when they needed to go to a territory." I said, well, I don't need to go to a territory. I just want to. He went, oh, okay. So uh, he gave me the date to start. I said, well, uh, Dory, there's one other thing. I said, uh, you know, i I got to have a guarantee. Now, that was unheard of in Amarillo, unheard of. He said, what are you talking about? I said, a guarantee. I said, you know, you're 2,500 miles away or however long Amarillo was from Colonia, New Jersey. You know, I said, uh, you're pretty far off. He said, well, what are you talking about here? I said, well, I, I said, I, I think I need, uh, I think I said 695 or something like that. He said, well, you know, we can give you 650. I said, oh, all right, I guess so. I said, but let's make it 650 plus, which means if there's more money in the territory, then, then I want to get paid more. So he agreed. He agreed. And so I went down there and, uh, you know, uh, I didn't. I didn't starve, but you know, Amarillo, uh, you know, was like driving around the world when you did that territory. Jesus, you know, you thought it would need. A, I mean, just to be comfortable on your day off, which you never had. You want to take the car seat in, in your house and put it in front of the television so you feel at home. You know, God, it was it was unreal. It was unreal, and and I had a guarantee. And uh, Dennis Stamp had just come in the same time I did. And uh, we got paid after the first week being a tag team. And Dennis saw my check. And he said, can I ask you a question? I said, yeah, what? He said, well, you, you, your check says 650 I said, yeah. He says, how come I only got 595 I said, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe you need to ask one of the funks. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Dennis wasn't on a guarantee. And, you know, it wasn't a problem. I mean, you know, I... Uh, I drove every night anyway. He rode with me, and uh, I didn't charge him trans, so so that was uh, a fair deal for him. But, yeah, I mean, the, the territories, you know, some of you made money. I, I was lucky that I had a fallback position. Uh, like I said, my family was in the newspaper business, and I always had a union card in the newspaper driver's union in New York. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I wouldn't let a promoter uh, treat me wrong. You know, uh, I'd say, okay, well, guess what? <laughs> this is the notice right now. Goodbye. Uh, you know, but but that 
uh, you know, maybe a, that spoiled brat attitude uh, didn't help. Uh, but, you know, the, the territories, New Brunswick was huge trips. Uh, uh, Amarillo, long, long trips. Kansas City, you had to travel around. Uh, you know, even even uh, nice territories like Puerto Rico, if you went to Puerto Rico, there were a couple of really long ones there. Uh, but you only worked three nights a week. You know, so you had to make sure they were good nights because you were paying to stay there. You know, you didn't you didn't go back to New Jersey after four days. You had to stay, which wasn't bad because it was a great territory. Uh, so you know, different places. Uh, uh, you know, California. If you worked in Los Angeles, uh, we used to have a joke, man. It, it was so good you could be home to watch the TV show Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman every night. You oh, know, wow. you made it. Yeah, you made it home. Uh, but other places were, were not as good. Uh, you know, it wasn't always a lot of money there. Uh, you know, you, you had to learn to live on the road. Uh, you didn't live like a tourist. You know, you didn't go to, gee, you know what, the, the Holiday Inn's got a good buffet. Well, you know what, it's the Holiday Inn. You don't want to do that. You know, you don't want to live like a tourist if you're traveling. You just can't afford to do stuff like that. So, you know, it's, it's a, it was a, it was a second education for me. You know, I got to go places that I never would have gone. You know, I, when would I ever gone to, to Japan and, and from Japan, you know, worked in Hong Kong and, and, uh, worked in Shanghai and, and did things like that. I would have never done that. That's amazing. You know, David, and along the same lines as that, you know, as far as like my perception of the glorious life, yeah, you guys, I always use the expression, there was no PTO in professional wrestling, no paid time off. You know, if you, if you were sick or you were injured, number one, you needed the money to pay the bills. And That's number right. two, you didn't want to lose your whatever spot you had in the pecking order. So besides your PhD in professional wrestling, I think you should also re- receive a plaque from the American Medical <laughs> Association as a combination for keeping their their doctors and surgeons gameplay. Oh yeah, the yeah, yeah. The, the the orthopedic association. That's well, for and, sure. <laughs> you know, back in the day, we used to watch the the original St- uh, Steve Austin, not Stone Cold, but the Six Million Dollar Man. And yep. I do believe that you may have exceeded him in medical procedures. So I, I want you to tell the people who think that you know you had a cushy, glorious life, what your medical history is as far as your surgeries. My surgeries, I've had. I think I might be lying for one or two, but I, I think it's been fourteen or fifteen Yikes. major major orthopedic surgeries. You know, I don't even count stitches and cortisone shots and and stuff like that. That's just a procedure. Uh, but you know, I've had uh, actually two weeks ago on a Friday, I had another knee procedure done. They entered through my groin uh, and had to go down the femoral artery. Uh, to my knee that's that's already been replaced uh, that doesn't seem to be working properly it keeps uh, it keeps blowing up like a water balloon and uh, uh, so yeah I, I 14 or 15 uh, I think now it's seven knee surgeries I think wow. uh, I had a, a labrum surgery on each hip then I had each hip replaced uh, my back uh, is, has a three-level fusion. Uh, my Achilles tendon has been reconstructed. Uh, let's see. Uh, I've had two 
I think two, maybe four ear surgeries uh, because I've, I've lost most of my hearing, uh, totally deaf in my right ear, uh, and, and about uh, 80% gone in my left ear uh, from, you know, getting slapped in the head and things like that. My right ear, uh, thank you, rest his soul to my good friend Pedro Morales, who during the match I forgot he was left-handed, and uh, I said to him, Pete, give me your best slap. Oh. He, he said, are you sure, baby? I said, I said, let's go. And when he started to throw the slap, I leaned the wrong way because I forgot he was left-handed. And, and he blasted my right ear, just blasted it. Uh, and it was such a slap that later, uh, another guy that's not with us anymore is uh, King Kong Bundy said to me, you know what? We were, this happened in Allentown. And, and Bundy said to me, I got to tell you something. We heard that pop in the dressing room. Wow. He said, he said, he said, Tito and I got up and said, what in the world was that? He said, and you know, then we saw you upside down in the ropes and we figured out what it was. Uh, but yeah, so, so that kind of stuff, you know, I don't count the, uh, you know, whatever stitches or little breaks, uh, uh, I, I told you before, I don't know if we were on or not yet, uh, that my wife and I were at uh, Angelo Savoldi's, I think, 95th birthday party. And sitting next to my wife was Bobby Backlund. And, and my wife and Bobby were talking, and I was talking to somebody else. And Bobby said to me, Davey, didn't, didn't you and I work in St. Louis? I said, yeah. I wanted to say, yes, Bob. That's where you dislocated my thumb. <laughs> but but I didn't want to say that. Yeah, that's where, you know, so I, I don't count that kind of stuff uh, because that was probably just put back in place in the dressing room. You know, you, you had guys uh, that uh, that should have had doctorates in there. You know, old-timer, I, I got dumped on my head uh, one night someplace uh, and, because I wanted to make a match out of it, and I shouldn't have. It was a new guy. Uh, that didn't know what he was doing. Anyway, he kind of dumped me on the side of my head, and, and, you know, I really, in the ring, said to myself, oh, boy, so this is how it's all over, huh? Uh, I couldn't feel I couldn't feel my shoulders. I couldn't feel my feet. It was a terrible, terrible, hot feeling. Uh, and it was so, so obvious that Mike Cicluna and Dominic, who had worked against each other, if you can believe that, you know, <laughs> only... Only seven thousand times they I was going to say, how many times did they yeah. wrestle each other? Holy crap! But anyway, it was it was such an obvious dump on my head that they actually ran out of the dressing room together. Wow! And yelled and yelled at the referee to stop the match. Now, like you just said, uh, I'm not. T- I can't take a night off. You know. I'm, okay, so I so I got to walk out of the ring with some help. And what they did was in the dressing room. I laid on a table. How dangerous is this to do now? Uh, they took a hotel towel and rolled it really tight in a long, long fashion and then wrapped it around my neck like a neck brace to hold my, you know, to kind of pull my head up and separate any vertebrae up there that were supposed to be separated. And in the car to the next town. 
in the car to the next town. And, uh, you know, if you needed some help, uh, somebody's got a, a bottle full of pills that could help you with that. And, you know, you know, unfortunately that's what we did. You know, that's what we did. Uh, you know, I, uh, whatever, whatever you needed to keep going, you know, uh, we used to carry, I don't even know the pharmaceutical name. We call them somas and, and a soma would give you instant relief and, and it was kind of euphoric. So if you weren't smart, you, you wanted more of those things. You know, if you wanted to go to sleep that night, you took some of those, you know, I was, I was chewing Delauded. You know, Delauded is synthetic morphine. You know, I was taking them like they were Tic Tacs, man. <laughs> you know, and, and that's, that's the life you lived. You know, that's the life you lived if you wanted to keep working. Uh, you know, since it was kind of magic for some of us, uh, you know, I've had, uh, I've heard people uh, tell my son. My son worked uh, a few times uh, on the independent circuit. And, uh, you know, uh, I could have I gotten him down to Vince's uh, developmental or, or uh, WCW's developmental. Or, and uh, then my wife reminded me uh, how expensive divorce might be. So, so we canceled that idea really quick. Yeah. But, you know, I've heard my son's friends, uh, you know, if we were up at the Hall of Fame or somewhere, uh, somebody would say to my son, well, you don't know how lucky you were to be in a wrestling family. You know, my kids were surrounded by the guys all the time, all the time. It, it was second nature to them. So you wanted to keep working because it was your job, but you also, it was really hard to leave it. It was really hard to leave it uh, because it was so special. And that's probably because, you know, a lot of people didn't get to do that. A lot of people wanted to. Uh, but a lot of people didn't get to do it. Uh, so it was that special for us. Well, this uh, this time just flew by, Davey. I appreciate it. Yep. Um, I want to wrap up with one final question. We, we've bounced back and forth a little bit. Um, hypothetically speaking, you have a time machine, and you could go back to the 1970s, young Davey O'Hannon just getting into the wrestling business. Knowing what you know now... Do you still become a wrestler? Yeah, you know what? Uh, the, the guy you had on, uh, Mickey Doyle. Yes, sir. Uh, I, I said to him not long ago, Mick, I don't know. Uh, you know, we're, we're limping around like a couple of broken down releases. And he said, stop right there, and you would do it all over again, wouldn't you? I said, well, if I would do it again if I know what I know now. I, I would just be smarter about it. But... I wanted to be a professional wrestler. That's all I ever wanted to do with my life. I didn't want to be a fireman. I didn't want to be a teacher. Or I, I just wanted to be a professional wrestler. So I got to do that. And and sometimes when I get a little pouty or, or in a mood, my wife says, listen, look what you got to do. Look what you got to do. You, you worked in Madison Square Garden. You, uh, you, were, you were in the ring with with world champions you know you you traveled all over the world and look what you got to do so yeah i got i got some some uh regrets uh but not a lot not a lot i wish my body felt better but you know what i still go to the gym uh i you know i'm careful about going up and down steps but i i get around just fine 
You know, Don Morocco told me a few nights ago, uh, he says, I don't know how you went through all the surgeries. He said, I'm sticking with the cane and the pain. He said, I'm not getting them done. I'm not getting them done. So the answer, I think the answer to the question is, uh, yeah, I I think I would absolutely do it again uh, uh, because, you know, it opens a lot of doors for you. Uh, and, you know, it was a cool thing to do. It was really, really a neat thing to do. And uh, somebody asked, uh, I don't know, Lawrence Olivier uh, once. Uh, I saw him in an interview, and they said, well, Lawrence, why do you act? And he said, three words. Look at me. Look at me. Just look at me. So, wow. you know, do, do we like being in front of people? Yeah, I probably do probably do it's fun uh it's it's something different and so so the so the long-winded answer to your question is yeah i would absolutely do it i'd make a few changes but i want to be in the wrestling business when i was in it that's when it was great right absolutely well we at least know uh knowing what you know now you'd lean the other way in that match with pedro <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I wouldn't lean at all. I'd say to him, "Don't you slap me." <laughs> no, don't do that. Give me the Boston crab. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe not that either. Oh, no. <laughs> you know, certain things you didn't let people do to you. That was that was what Boston crab was. One of my rules. No, no Boston, Boston crab, crab on me. Yeah, we'll think of something else. That one's that one is too hard to work. That's just uncomfortable to look at too. So, no, we're not doing that. Well, Davey, I do want to wish you, I, I believe, um, you know, Mickey Doyle's birthday and, and my birthday are on the same date, which oh. is Saturday. He's going to be 75. I'm a little bit less than that. But then I think you have a birthday on Monday, don't you? Yeah, I do. I usually, I don't talk about my birthdays it's because 30, I hate them. Yeah. I, I tell people, uh, like, uh, uranium, they have to carbon date me now to get my uh, yes. age. Yes, yes. Yeah, uh, but I did want to wish you a happy birthday. Well, thank you. Thank you. I just said to a childhood friend I spoke to a little while ago, I said, what happened here? What happened? How did, how did we get to this age? You know? And he said to me, I don't know how you got to it uh, with what you did, but, but yeah, yeah you know what? The uh, uh, greatest thing that ever happened to me, you know, don't forget I wanted to be a wrestler or nothing else, but, uh, you know, the greatest thing that happened to me is, uh, is my wife and my three kids. That's it. You know, uh, if I want to sit and, and think uh, and have peaceful thoughts and uh, and know I got some great people and, and their spouses, uh, all three of them, uh, they're they're just so wonderful and uh, I love them and uh, you know uh, it, it, they were a big part of this. They supported me doing this and uh, hopefully I never embarrassed them. And, and somehow they survived having Dominic Danucci, Baron Mikel Cicluna, and Lou Albano <laughs> as their babysitters. Oh yeah, yeah. That's for sure. Paul Vachon playing on the floor with my daughter and her toys and then telling her how to put them away. My wife would look at me and say, are you losing your mind? What are you doing here? You know, we're, we're Johnny Valiant doing stand-up comedy routines in our kitchen. Wait a minute. <laughs> Never a dull moment in the O'Hannon house, right? Never a dull <laughs> moment. No, it was great. It was great. Well, I don't think uh, we could end on better words than that. So, uh, Davey, again, thank you so much for your time. Well, Davey O'Hannon, the, the original Long Island Ice-Z 
Benny Scala. I'm Dan Spashin. Have a good night, everyone, and we will see you next time we're in the ring. See you tomorrow. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye.